Easy come, easy go. We interrupt your regular broadcast to bring you this important news bulletin. River Radio has arrived. Beautiful. Tell your friends. But don't forget to wear your mask. That's right. <laughs> now to continue with the tape recording. You're listening to The Sports Show on River Radio. This is Extra Time. This is The, the, the Sports Show. Hello and welcome to Extra Time, where we bring you the sports stories and talking points from the Thames Valley and beyond. I'm Will Taylor, and over the next hour, I'll be taking you through debate and discussion alongside our panellists, Maria Sapsinos, Ben Green and Sam Setti. We've got plenty coming up on today's show, so come and join us as we get into another episode of Extra Time. Coming up this week, Ben Green chats to Linda Sirk from the Talking Tennis podcast about Wimbledon, which begins this week. It has a semi-mythical, if not mythical, status, of course, not just the UK, but around the world. It is in the world arena of tennis. Maria heads out and about to the only dodgeball club in Reading, the Berkshire Royals, to see how they're getting on following the reopening of indoor sports. It's absolutely amazing to be back. We were so excited that we could get back to playing, seeing our friends again, really getting the club off its leg. We'd only really just been up, up and running for eight months to a year before, before the pandemic. And we catch up with usual host and teammate Ed Tarleton after he completed a mammoth 100-kilometre walk for Calm, raising over £2,000 in the process. It was unquestionably the most challenging thing I have ever undertaken, physically and mentally. And to complete the distance in the time we did feels incredible. All that and much more to come on this week's Extra Time. Good evening, everybody. That's right. It's another episode of Extra Time on River Radio. As you heard, I'm Will Taylor, joined by three wonderful panellists or co-hosts. Whichever they decide to go by is absolutely fine with me. And it is week four here of Extra Time. We're ready to get stuck in. Um, I'm joined by a similar but slightly different panel this week. Um, First and foremost, regular panellist and co-host Maria. Maria, how are you doing? I'm doing great, thanks. How are you, Will? I'm not too bad, actually. It's nice you asked me back. I really appreciate that. Uh, obviously, Wimbledon starting, I think it was today? Today. Today, today. yeah. So, um, a big tennis fan like yourself. We'll speak about it, obviously, with Linda Sirk a little bit later on. How exciting is it for you? I'm buzzing. Really, it's really good. No, <laughs> Doesn't just, sound like it. No, I am. It's, re- it's really exciting. Buzzing. That's her I mean, buzzing, yeah, exactly. I mean, no, I am buzzing, but I haven't been able to watch any of it yet, so so the enthusiasm's not there. I'm waiting for the later stages, for the more crucial matches, and kind of see see who wins and takes it from on the, on the grass, really. Sounds a bit like a glory support to me, but we'll move on swiftly. Uh, Sam, uh, obviously... <laughs> couple of big things coming up this week in the world of sport England Germany obviously on tomorrow night that's the game everyone seems to be waiting for and a big rugby fan like yourself the British and Irish Lions heading out to South Africa yeah I mean I don't know which one I'm more excited about really (laughs) (laughs) Uh, probably probably after the prediction that I might make uh, British Lions yeah Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's it certainly is going to be uh, going to be a hell of a game tomorrow. Certainly, um, can't wait to see it. We're obviously joined for the first time by Ben Green in the studio as well. You might know him as our roaming reporter, doing lots of different packages and bits for us. But he is here in the studio today. First and foremost, Ben, welcome. Yes, welcome. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, thanks for having me on. Like I said, it's big shoes to fill with Ed not being here. Hopefully, <laughs> I could do him proud. And you know what, Will? It's also nice to see you because. I did see you on the telly the other week and you looked very nervous and obviously Torquay, I don't want to rub it in too much, but Torquay 
did lose the playoff final, if, if anyone didn't know. Um, but I'm, I'm just looking at the clock. Four minutes in. Yeah, I'm just looking at the clock. In. Four minutes and Ben's lost his job. It's unbelievable. <laughs> it really is some turnaround. Um, we'll gloss, gloss over that, especially because Torquay's last game in the Football League that we so nearly got to was against your beloved Wickham Wanderers, wasn't it? Yeah, incredible, really, the, the turn of success <laughs> for Wickham compared to you guys since then. That was the last game and that was about seven years ago now. Yeah, so. thank you for that. Yeah, uh, There's always next year, isn't there? <laughs> no, but uh, in, in all seriousness, can you just tell us a little bit about uh, everything, your sort of everything that you've done so far and all the packages you've sort of done for us and all that sort of stuff yeah well obviously I was on the same course as you we're doing broadcasting at UCFB Wembley and um, sort of getting some experience now doing the reporting for you guys but like I said it's also great to be in the studio and finally get some experience inside the uh, in the booth Absolutely, mate. Absolutely. 100%. Um, obviously, as well, we just spoke very briefly with you rubbing it in my face about Wickham being so much better than Talking United. There is, um, there is a slight shout, obviously, with the, you know Wickham falling in the Thames Valley area that they might be in the championship next year, isn't it? Well, look, I, I don't want to get too excited about it because every time <laughs> I do think about it, it gets me incredibly excited. But I think a decision has to be made in the next two to three weeks because... How can Wickham go into next season preparing for League One and the Championship? You know, there's a different budget, different players you're looking for. So, yes, I would love us to be in the Championship. But if we are going to be, please, let's find out in the next two to three weeks. Did you say you've sold a player, though, like already? You've been preparing for life in League One and now you might be in the Championship. Yeah, we, we've sold a player, Fred on your dimmer, because he wanted Championship football. And we still may be playing in the championship. So, who knows, six months from now, I might get a loan back to can us. Can I ask, because clearly I have no idea why... Why is there an issue? It's all to do with Derby. So Derby have some financial regularities, which the Sheffield Wednesday had the same problem, but they had a points deduction at the start of the season. Right. Derby appealed, and so they didn't get a points deduction. Subsequently, Derby stayed up by one point. So if, you know, it could be argued that without those financial gains, they wouldn't have maybe got those players and slash stayed up. So I think it's pending an appeal because um, the EFL aren't happy with the decision. But... Like I said, let's, let's hopefully find out in the next two to three weeks. Good luck. Perfect. So a warm welcome to, to all the guests this week, and especially Ben for his first time here. And last week, Ben sat down with Linda Sirk from, from the Talking Tennis podcast and Caversham Lawn Tennis Club. Linda is heading to Wimbledon for the first time ever this week. And for someone as crazy as tennis crazy as her, she gave us a great insight into the tournament. She started out by telling us just how big an event it is for the country and the sport as a whole. Well, it has a semi-mythical, if not mythical, status, of course, not just the UK, but around the world. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful tennis event where all the players, all the professionals aspire to play. And of course, uh, Nadal isn't playing uh, this year, which uh, I'm sure he's pretty heartbroken about. A couple of other big players as well have bowed out. But otherwise, no, it is in the world arena of tennis. So we're obviously about to see the return of Andy Murray, as well as, you know, as he bids to try and emulate previous success. It's unlikely, though, isn't it, with all the injury problems he's suffered, that he may be able to, you know, mount a serious challenge this year. That's right. I mean, he it's the first time in four years that he's coming back to play singles at Wimbledon. And it was really nice to see the other day that uh, Roger Federer was having a hit with him, having a practice with him well so it's great to see the camaraderie still there at the top but it's not about the winning for Andy Murray I think this year it's about coming back to tennis after that humongous operation he had on his hip the fact that he is still playing he thought he had to retire not long ago uh, we all saw the press conference you know when he was in tears saying that he might have to retire and that uh, documentary that he had on Amazon Prime charting his uh, road 
recovery. Um, it was phenomenal, the amount of work he's put into getting back on court and really, um, you know, uh, everyone's expectations were that he had to retire, but he has uh, bucked that, that expectation and he is back on court. So it doesn't really matter if he wins or if he loses. You know, it's about him coming back and um, I'm going there to Wimbledon uh, on Wednesday. So if he's there, I'm going to give him a big cheer no matter what. And looking ahead to another one of the key players, I mean, Novak Djokovic, he can obviously tie Roger Federer's Grand Slam total if he wins this year's tournament. So just how big an achievement would that be? And, and you know, with time still in his side, does he have a genuine claim, in, in your opinion, to be the greatest of all time? I think so, yeah. I mean, he is just, I, I call him the Terminator because he is like robotic. <laughs> you know, in the finals against Tsitsipas, you know, he was two sets down. And psychologically, many players would may have given up, but you know he came back and and won the last three three sets. It's just incredible how this man he is a machine on court. So definitely. Uh, and I understand that you're going to Wimbledon for the first time uh, on Wednesday as well. So what do you expect from that? Well, yes, I have been watching Wimbledon on telly for so many years, and I've never managed to get a ticket in the ballot. But this year it's a little bit different. So LTA members, Lawn Tennis Association members, and I remember uh, had the opportunity to buy tickets online in one of those online queuing systems. So I waited four hours to get my tickets and I wanted to go on the Wednesday. I got caught one ticket. So I'm so excited because, you know, as I said before, it has this mythical status in the tennis world. And I am expecting uh, to be... Uh, watching obviously a lot of tennis um, I'm going to be completely in awe of the his of the history of the place I mean there was has been a, a tournament there since the 1870s you know it's such a historic place for tennis never seen a professional tennis match before I'm ashamed to say so I'm going to be watching lots of tennis on court one picking up lots of tips uh, because it's so different watching it uh, live than on the telly so I'm going to be picking up lots of tips, maybe in terms of serving and uh, net strategy and things like that. Uh, so, yeah, going away, having a great time, basically. Uh, and obviously, I mean, I know it's going to be great to have fans back, but at the same time, there's still going to be a lack of full capacity. So with that lack of a full capacity, you know, will that have an effect on the players going into the last stage of the tournament? You know, it's, I'm, I'm, I know the, the atmosphere will still be electric, but it's not going to quite be the same as it usually is. Well, listen, I mean, the centre court capacity is uh, 15,000 people and half that, that's 7,500. So while it is only 50%, it's still 7,500 people that will be there making a lot of noise. So I think in terms of how the players are affected, I don't think they're going to be affected as much. Certainly not when it's a completely empty stadium they're playing in. You know, that was like the Rotterdam Open, for example, not long ago. That was completely empty and you could hear the echoes of the balls you could hear every word that all the players were saying you know there was no atmosphere at all so I think in terms of the players I don't think they'll be affected because seven and a half thousand people can still make a hell of a lot of noise and for me personally as, a, as someone that's never been before I'm quite enjoying the, the idea of not being completely crammed amongst a throng of people I think it'd be quite nice to walk around with only 50% capacity, not having to wait too long in the queues for the toilets or the PIMS tent, um, and uh, not having to wait too long uh, to go through security. 
we do all have to take uh, uh, evidence of a no, uh, of a negative COVID test, uh, which is something that we all have to do two days prior to the championship. So uh, we will be expecting a bit of a delay whilst everyone um, has their COVID status checked. But otherwise, I'm seeing it as a positive. And I'm sure the players will be too. And we'll, we'll touch on who, who maybe you think is a dark horse for the tournament, but... Are there any players that you think are really going to benefit from that boost of crowd? Like you said, they've been playing with essentially no fans all, all year. And are there maybe two or three players that really raise their game when the crowd are there? OK, so uh, for me, I think young players like Coco Goff, uh, she is such a young player. I mean, she was only 15 when she played Wimbledon in 2019. So I think for her, getting that crowd atmosphere behind her um, is going to be a big boost for her because she's such a popular player. And she was absolutely, you know, it's just magical to watch such such a young person play so well professionally. So I think for me, um, Coco Goff is someone who's going to really benefit from, from the crowds. Linda, thank you so much for joining us and enjoy your day on Wednesday. That was Ben Green there chatting to Linda Cirque from the Talking Tennis Podcast and Caversham Lawn Tennis Club. Just while we were just while we were listening to that there and um, and and hearing what Ben and Linda had to say, Sam's just informed me that he he actually was at Wimbledon quite a few years ago. I hope you don't mind me saying Sam. Quite a few, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Um, and and there was there was a little bit of trouble there, wasn't there for you? Yeah. Well, my my uncle uh, was a debenture holder for Centre Court, so me and my cousin, he was slightly older. I think I was sixteen. He was eighteen. We got to go every day, but we went in my mum's banged out Honda Accord, you know, really knackered. And we got to park and, of course, they, they saw two little oinks with a banged out Accord and couldn't understand how we got tickets. And stuck us right at the back, the furthest they could get to us. Um, anyway, the last day, finals, my uncle owned Panther Car Company. He also owned William Hill Bookmakers. So he said, right, take the Panther. Yeah, it's beautiful 1930s, bit like Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. We drove through central London, got to Wimbledon, got to the same gate with the same blokes. And of course, hello, sir, how are you? Would you like this spot right here next to all the Ferraris and the whatever else? Of course we would, you know. And no, would you like us to park it for you? No, you're not driving this thing at all. You know, so we parked it up. Yeah, and we had a great summer, me and my cousin. So, yeah. Incredible, incredible stuff. And Ben, just going back to the package now, do you reckon we can expect like a spike in involvement in tennis at the to- as the tournament progresses? Oh yeah, for sure. I think especially as well if maybe some, some of the British players get further into the tournament. And I always relate it back to those other sports. I remember when Bradley Wiggins um, won the Tour de France, there was about two years where everyone wanted to be a cyclist. So I'm sure if a couple of British players get deep into the tournament, you get the kids wanting to go out and have a you know, game with their mum and dad. So yeah, I definitely think, especially, you know, to maybe two two weeks down the line where the tournament's in the last stages and um, we'll be seeing people wanting to play tennis, definitely. Maria, you're obviously a big tennis fan. How big a tournament is this for the sport in comparison to what Linda mentioned? Yeah, it's a, it's a, huge, it's a huge tournament for the sport. Obviously, one of the four Grand Slams, so... One of the one of the major tournaments, the one that pretty much everyone wants to win. I know a lot of people, a lot of tennis players. Wimbledon is their dream. Yes, you have Roland Garros, the US Open, Australian Open, but something there's something about Wimbledon that edges it for them. I don't know if it's the white outfits. I don't know what it is really, <laughs> you know. But it bit, I, for some reason, I always feel like there's a little bit more prestige around Wimbledon. It's the home of tennis, isn't it? Yeah, but it's just yeah, everyone. 
everyone wants to win it. So I think it's it's a really great tournament. I, I, I just can't wait to see it all unfold and see what happens. Obviously, earlier today we saw Titi Pass has just has just kind of bombed out 3-0. Um, he lost. So um, that's just incredible to think about the fact that he was in the Roland Garros final just, what, three weeks ago or something like that, and now he's lost first round at Wimbledon. So, yeah, I think we can expect a lot of, a lot of big things and a lot of surprises, especially the short turnaround from clay to, to grass court tennis. And I think it's just going to be a fabulous event, really, and, and something that everyone's going to be glued to, unless unless England keep winning and then everyone's <laughs> going to be glued to the Euros. <laughs> it is unusual, isn't it, as well, the turnaround to be so quick from clay to grass straight away. I mean... I'm not chucking this in the predictions league. It's Sam's turn for the predictions this week. There's no getting away from that. I'm not trying to intervene, Sam. Please don't think I am. But early doors in the tournament, I always like doing this because I think it can it can lead to some amazing shouts and it can also embarrass people, which I love. And I'm not. I wasn't going to mention Maria being bottom of the predictions league, but I think I'm going to have to now. Just Brilliant. just sort of slide that one in there. Um, men's and women's singles, obviously the big they're the, they're the sort of creme de la creme of the event, if you will. Can we get a you know we'll, we'll start with you, Maria can we get a men's winner and a women's winner who you just off the cuff who you just think off might the do cuff. I'll go Djokovic for the men's and uh, women's is just too open for me I think Williams yeah is playing she's she's good she didn't play that great at Roland Garros I don't think so obviously Osaka's not there so I think I'm going to go a little bit rogue with the with the women's. I'm actually going to go for Sakari, who's who's Greek, obviously, <laughs> um, and then no just put it out there. there. <laughs> no bias. Well, yeah, but th- those are my two. Okay, Sam. Uh, I'm going for Ashley Barty. I think, yeah, I think she's she's got to be in with a shout. Um, I think Serena at forty might be just pushing the edge. I think. I, I, the only thing is, it's you know, women's is three sets compared to men's five sets. So mm. I, I think age doesn't hit the women as hard as it does with the men because it's not a, such a marathon. Mm. Um, but I think she, if she wins, Serena, that is, she gets a, you know, the, she takes the world record of a number of titles. Um, but I just can't see it. No, Ben. Well, I think for the men, obviously Novak, he's getting closer to Roger's, you know, record or Grand Slam. So he's the obvious pick. With the women, I would have said. Hannah Contour, well, she's not in the tournament now. So I'm the same as Sam, probably go with Serena just because of the experience she has and the previous title she's won there. Yeah, I mean, I, I love a fairy tale. And I think <laughs> I think that what you're saying about it being her chance to, to sort of claim that crown, I think would be absolutely, it would be poetic justice when a tournament she's been so successful in. Yeah. So um, so Williams and Djokovic for me. Did you say amends? Yeah, I said Djokovic. Oh, of course you did. I, I, I know, Serena. Now I'm going, yes, no, go I'm, Serena. Now I, after that fairy tale finish, I'm like, yeah, you're right, actually. What, who cares about Barty? Forget her. She can, she can win it the year after or the year after that. <laughs> exactly that, exactly that. Well, uh, a great package from Ben there, just talking to Linda Sirk from uh, from the Talking Tennis podcast. And, uh, the, you know, the, the men's and women's winners debate is certainly something that will continue beyond uh, this show. Um, it is time for us to move on, though. And up next, it's out and about. Windsor, Windsor. Ascot, Ascot, Maidenhead, Bracknell, Bracknell. Wokingham, Wokingham, Henley, Henley. Reading. Okay. The voice River Radio of the Thames Valley. You're listening to Extra Time, River Radio's resident sports show, and we now turn our attention to Out and About, where we send Maria Sapsinos into the community to find out more about local sport. This week, she headed down to Berkshire Royals Dodgeball Club to find out a little bit more about what they do down there. Um, 
that's head coach and founder of Berkshire Royals Dodgeball Club, Steph White, explaining to the players, including me, the rules of the training session. Steph has played dodgeball for 14 years and was part of the first ever England women's team. She explained to me her decision to set up the club here in Reading. I've been playing for a really long time now. Um, I think 14 years and uh, unfortunately there's not many clubs in and around the area. I was travelling as far as Winchester to train and tournaments are often in the Midlands so I wanted something a lot more local and available to the community that I could play with as well. Steph then went on to tell me about the structure of Berkshire Royals. It's a really welcoming, fun group of people who are everything from complete and utter beginners to pretty expert players. We play once a week on a Tuesday from 8 till 10pm currently at the warehouse in Cemetery Junction and we start off the session with a bit of a warm-up, get into games and then we'll do drills, fun games and teach everyone to play dodgeball and then work on things as a team as well. But it's not just training that the club members do they also compete we've signed up to one of british dodgeball's regional leagues which will be based in salisbury and that will mean taking a team about once a month to a regional league where we play other teams from different towns and cities near us and then there are a number of opens around the country as well and we've entered the southwest open which i think is in july and that's more of a tournament structure rather than a league and involves quarterfinals and semi-finals and finals if we were so lucky <laughs> Alongside many indoor sports, the pandemic led to the suspension of the Berkshire Royals. Fortunately for the club, it had little financial costs, which made surviving through the pandemic that little bit easier. Unfortunately, we shut down completely in the pandemic. It wasn't possible or safe to play dodgeball, and we've taken advice from British Dodgeball and the governing bodies and the government at all times to make sure that everything's safe. And only recently, in the last month, we've been allowed to restart. There are slight changes to the rules, specifications on hall size and number of players and minimising any risk and so on. But we still haven't yet competed again, so hopefully that's going to start again in the upcoming weeks. Thankfully our hall is really generous and supportive and they helped us to start up by offering us their hall at a really nice cheap price and again saying that their aim is to help community clubs and charities and that they they didn't ask us for any sort of funding um, or payment during the pandemic so we just basically stopped (laughs) and luckily haven't lost any money or anything like that. Steph then went on to tell me how the club has bounced back since the reopening. It's absolutely amazing to be back. We were so excited that we could get back to playing, seeing our friends again, really getting the club off its legs. We'd only really just been up and running for eight months to a year before the pandemic, so we were only at a starting point then and didn't have an awful lot of members. So it's really good to be able to get lots of people back and enthusiastic and people seem to be more keen to be doing something now post-lockdown and actually we've got better numbers than pre-pandemic at the moment. I then asked Steph to summarise the sport of dodgeball in her own words. It's a really exciting sport. It keeps you fit, but whilst you're getting fit, you're, you're having fun. It doesn't feel arduous. It just feels, feels like you're just seeing friends and having a muck about, but actually it's, it's a really great sport. It's very inclusive as well. As I say, so that we've got everything from complete beginners to international players and try and get everyone involved. You can just hear on this audio how fast-paced and tactical the game of dodgeball really is. 
Now, halfway through the session, I did manage to pull aside Josh Wilson, who was a key member of my team that night, but alongside being a player, helped Steph out with the coaching aspect. So I'm quite experienced uh, having picked up at uni, um, so I can kind of guide the newer players into a bit of coaching, try and go through some fun drills and try and get, get everyone to improve. Despite the club only being founded in 2019, Josh has high aspirations for the club's future. Because we're such a new club, we haven't got many kind of league places or where we are in the, the league system. So if we can kind of get, get that off the ground and get, get to be a bit more competitive, and at the same time, if we can get, get some more players in, that would be perfect. And maybe even kind of a junior club in the future would be really good as well. Well, having joined in the session, I can tell you that there was a lot of laughter and smiles alongside sweating and fast throwing. I've definitely learnt to always face forward when playing dodgeball. Maria Sapsinos there, out and about at Berkshire Royals Dodgeball Club, I should say, if my words fancy coming out. Um, Obviously, Maria, it was a it was a really interesting sort of insight there into what we can expect from dodgeball. Um, it's it's getting really busy down there as well, though, isn't it? It's a sport that's sort of picking up some pace. Yeah, definitely. I, I turned up um, the warehouse by Cemetery Junction in Reading, and I, I didn't really know what to expect. I had a bit of communication with Steph um, beforehand, but no, people turned up in numbers and and mainly between the twenties and thirties. A, a lot of the players I spoke to there were had come from university, really. So. They, they kind of dropped off and they were looking for the next place to go that they wanted to carry on the sport but they, they didn't know where the best place to go was and Steph set up this club in 2019 so so they all kind of flocked there and it, it was really great it was a really great atmosphere down there and I noticed you said off mic that you that's the first time you've played dodgeball so I mean how tough was it physically yeah Extremely. I, I feel like I'm going to say this every single time. Yeah, you I said go, about squashed in yeah, yeah, every single time in the out and about, I feel like I'm just going to come on and be like, I was exhausted, I was tired, but I was. Um, it's starting to say more about you, actually, yeah. than the sports, isn't it? <laughs> Maybe table tennis isn't as arduous as yeah. you think. <laughs> That's the word. <laughs> no, sorry, go no, on. No, 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 but it was... It was Maybe it does say something about yeah. me. But no, it was more... It was the movements you had to do. It was nothing. Squash was like table tennis. Dodgeball for me wasn't wasn't anywhere near. I had to face forward all the time. Someone who wears glasses, my glasses were on the floor half the time, being smacked in the face. But no, it was really good fun. And yeah, it obviously doesn't hurt when the balls hit you in the face. But at the same time, it was a lot of movement, a lot of communication, which I hadn't really anticipated that I'd have to speak to all my... I, Honestly, if I'm being honest, I thought it was going to be like the movie. Everyone's seen the movie. It's a great movie where they all run in, they all do dances, they're all wearing stupid <laughs> outfits. I obviously didn't think it was going to be like that, but I didn't realise how serious it was going to be and really the tempo of the game and how fast it was. And it, it was really, really, really fun. It's actually Holland's number one sport for females. Is it? Is it really? Yeah, it's massive over in Europe and Germany too. Um, you know, it, it's an interesting thing for, for women... Uh, in this country, netball tends to be one of the biggest sports. In America, it's female basketball. And here's the odd thing. America invented netball. And yet they really? don't. Yeah, that's where a netball came from. Uh, we didn't do it over here. So, And yet they have very little uh, female participation over a netball. But basketball's massive. But dodgeball in certainly Holland and Germany and Belgium, 
that's their number one sport for females. Anyway, less of me. Um, <laughs> how was the training session and atmosphere then? Well, amazing, as I, as I picked up on before. Um, really, really good. I turned up, everyone was so welcoming, so friendly. Everyone was just happy to be there. I think after lockdown, Steph mentioned in the package that people were just more willing to come come down and they, they have better numbers now than they had pre, pre-lockdown. So it was really great. It was great to speak to so many people as well. Obviously, you couldn't hear everyone's voices on there because it was it was who, whoever I could kind of pull aside at the time because we're in teams. I was team one. Needless to say, we won. Um, <laughs> Despite your glasses being yeah. on the floor and you've been exhausted. Well, yeah. somehow, somehow I think they took pity on me and they, they put me in a really great team. But no, um, it was really great to, to speak to everyone. And yeah. Everyone was kind of happy to be there, happy to be out. They they all congregated at the pub afterwards as well. It was a real social side to it. And, yeah, really, really nice. I mean, obviously, you caught up with uh, Dodgeball at the local level, but you also went on to catch up with it at the national level as well, uh, catching up with England Dodgeball coach David Paul. Um, He started out by telling Maria uh, a little bit about his role and England Dodgeball overall. So um, I, at the moment, mainly focus with the guys, but historically have focused coaching. So we have a, a, a men's side, a women's side, and also there's mixed tournaments. Um, so historically, England, um, we're a very good team. We've got a lot of very good players. Um, we've got multitudes of goals across kind of all of the competitions on all the different stages. At the moment, um, the last tournament would have been the European Champs um, up in Newcastle, um, which... Uh, didn't go as planned, so um, I think we got uh, two third places and a second place. So you know, in in all account, um, it's still very good results. But um, you know, we like to we are a very good team and we do compete with the best. Um, but at that at that time, uh, Northern Ireland were very good. They beat our men's team in the semi final, um, and again they were a very good setup. And then the Austrian mixed team beat our mixed team um, in the semi final, and then I think it was Austria women's in the final, which again was a very close game, but Austria have been a rival of England for a while. So um, we've got a very good setup. We've got very good players. I'd like to think we can still, on our day, we'll beat any other team. Um, it just happens to be that the last tournament, it just it didn't go our way, unfortunately. And obviously going from that um, local sort of level of dodgeball going up to England, what differs in sort of the training aspect? What, how, what kind of training do you have to do to get to that elite level? Um, so there's a few things where we like there's expectations on players when they come and trial or train for us so it sort of moves away from kind of a club or a university focus where things basic skill elements like you know you know your your catching or your 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 throwing technique and kind of rough catching skills that all of that kind of thing should be focused on at a non-elite level so you know at the university or the club level those kind of things should be really focused on um, so then when you get to our senior squads within England, it's a matter of getting players used to playing each other, getting that cohesion, because um, it's not just about having individuals on court, it's about getting them together and playing as a team. And that's a huge part of how England have been successful historically, is yes, we've got great players, but they come together and deliver as a team. So that's a big part. So it's it's being able to get the team players knowing how each other play and then also then embedding tactics. So compared to quite a few kind of non-elite or some of the like community or university clubs, we've got quite a kind of expansive playbook, um, which means we've got to work on getting all the players to understand exactly when we have a call or when we have certain things happen on in a game. Um, 
you know, what things should we be looking for for our players to do to sort of counteract or to react in, to, in regards to those situations? And how much does tactics, obviously I went down to the Berkshire Rolls and I'll be honest, I was completely lost with the tactics that were going on. I didn't realise <laughs> that there were going to be tactics, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Um, so how much does tactics play in an in a elite game of dodgeball? Oh, massive, massive. The, t- the two, yeah, so I, th- I think the three biggest things would be, obviously, ind- you need individual talent, you need teamwork, and then the other thing with the other thing as part of that three has got to be tactics. Um, and if you've got a team which is, you know, you've got good players, but for argument's sake, it's it might um, very high level, but not managing ball possession. If they're if they're throwing all of the balls every single time, yes, they might still be getting a couple of hits, but they're giving the other team the opportunity to who be more aggressive because they'll have more balls. So it's all about knowing what to do in what situation. Are we up? Are we down? Not just in each individual game, but also overall the match. So there's so many different little components which weigh into those decisions in each game. So, and again, that relies on obviously how we train the players, but then also the players just taking what we've drilled and trained with them to just be able to read and do on court because they're the ones at the end of the day with me coaching, they're the ones on court who have to make the calls and sort of make the decisions themselves. And just finally, Obviously, your role within Team England. What are what are the ambitions for Team England? Where do they want to Where do they want to be in in five years' time? What's the What's the goal? And and what are your kind of goals and aspirations within within your role as well? Yeah, so um, it's an interesting one at the moment because obviously we've had we've just come out of lockdown or coming out of lockdown. So we're in the process of planning. You know, what does England look like for the next few years? What are you know our biggest thing at the moment is actually getting players to return to dodgeball in the UK. And then also to the elite level safely. So that's at the moment one of our big aspirations. It's not just about getting people ready to compete. We don't want to put them in a situation where they can get injured. With it being a you know a non-paid sport, we've got a responsibility to look after kind of our players' kind of health and welfare in regards to that. So that's a big focus at the moment. Um, it's an interesting one as well. We've got Team GB have been set up recently. So over the last few years, that's been um, sort of kind of a new goal for a lot of players. Like historically, it would be our you know players aspiring, I want to play for Wales, I want to play for Scotland, Northern Ireland, England or whoever. Um, and that being sort of the elite level where now actually you get to play for, you know, England and it would be kind of in things like the European champs. You then got the opportunity to be selected for Great Britain. So actually that now for England is we're a development platform for our players as well to give them that opportunity. So, you know, I've got quite a few players who are historically were part of GB and actually I, that falls, well, I feel like it falls under me as a coach of them to support their development and hope that they do perform their best for GB as well. So for me as a coach in England, that's what I, you know, that's a goal I've sort of taken on and I want to support my players. Um, so it's making sure that I, you know, I support the players and, you know, prepare them to be able to perform and deliver within those kind of uh, opportunities. Maria Sapsinos there talking to David Paul, the English dodgeball coach. Actually, really interesting insight he sort of gave us there to the sort of idea of a Team GB and all that sort of stuff as well. I mean, you spoke to sort of two sides of the coin, I guess, there, didn't you? You spoke to the local club in the Berkshire Royals and then the sort of head coach of England, so it doesn't get much bigger in terms of sport in this country. I mean, what stands out to you about the sport after speaking to both of those people? Well, I think a few things stand out to me. One is that the university level dodgeball is is where they get the majority of their players from. That is where people get hooked on the sport. Not so many people below that levels. And before um, Josh Wilson from the club was saying that they wanted to get a junior program going, and I think that is really something that in the in the near future that they're going to try and do. But I think 
the the main thing that really stood out was the tactics behind it and and the thought processes that go in when the players step onto the court and they step onto the matches and how much preparation and tactics and communication and teamwork is really involved in dodgeball. It's not just one person picking it up and throwing it. It's a very team sort of activity where they all run up to the line at the same time and they, sh- they shout numbers and all those numbers correlate to different players on the other side and the other team don't know what the numbers correlate to so it's really really like a thought-provoking kind of activity as well as a physical activity that that happens no definitely i mean it is really interesting like i said to hear that insight i mean obviously we've, we've spoken about dodgeball at the local in inter- and international level now and it's also the international level that we'll be staying with just after well, just after a little break as we're going to turn our attention to the british and irish lions in south africa uh, england's tie against germany and our co-host ed walking over 100 kilometers in our hot topic hot topic section And now for Hot Topic section, the part of the show where we pick up topics from around the world and discuss them amongst ourselves. I think it's really only fair to start with our missing co-host Ed Tarleton, who walked 100 kilometres in under 24 hours this weekend, raising over £2,500 for Calm. Ed's with us now on the phone as he physically can't walk to the studio. Ed, how arduous was the walk? Hi there, Maria. Uh, Thank you for having me on. It was... um very demanding, very, very tough, not just physically, but, but mentally as well. Uh, we always knew that towards the end of 100 kilometres, uh, it was going to be a, a real challenge. That was uh, never in question, but the mental demands of the things that I found myself reflecting on in the, uh, in the, in the past 48 hours or so, just looking back at, at the manifestations of those. Um, so, yeah, very, very demanding. Physically, as you say, I'm not in the best condition, but very pleased to have raised the money we did and, and do the challenge in the time we did, which was under 24 hours. Ed, you mentioned, um, obviously, how, just how arduous it was. I mean, you think, you, you obviously you've trained so much for it. There were so many training walks that, that you were letting us know about that, that you know, you're sort of an update, updating us with your progress. How, how far did they go to actually preparing you? Because obviously they weren't as big as 100 kilometres. So actually facing that challenge when it came to it, how different was it to those training walks and how like, sort of deep did you have to dig to, to try and get yourself through it? Uh, it's a great question. Well, it really is because obviously at, at one point or another, you start to wonder if you haven't completed 100 kilometers before, whether or not on the day you'll be able to meet life in the moment and whether you'll actually be able to push yourself that bit further than you did in training. Our training walks got as far as 70 kilometers. And once we hit that, that point where the number started in a seven, I felt confident that I could probably uh, carry on because a 30 kilometer walk would, would take about six hours. Um, and mentally that was a trade I made in my head on the day. There were certain things though that I couldn't anticipate in advance. We did more rest stops, uh, in the actual walk itself than we normally would. So in that regard, we were over trading, but after the biggest rest stop, which is at 50 kilometers where you're allowed to get a quick sort of massage just to remove any lactic acid, things like that. You're also allowed a, a hot meal. They have facilities to do that. Between about 55 and 65 kilometres, I developed uh, quite an acute sense of nausea, which was a real challenge because I've been used to overriding the pain. I've been used to, you know, trying to compartmentalise that. But this was something I'd never experienced before, and I actually had to make myself physically sick in order to carry on 
because it was dominating my thought process so much. It was making it increasingly difficult to walk at the pace I needed to to achieve what we had to do. Um, so in that regard, there was, there was something unexpected and you can only handle that in the way you see fit. For me personally, I had to get what I had ingested out of my system in order to feel comfortable enough to continue. Um, so it wasn't a particularly pleasant sight, and I do apologise for anyone who's squeamish, but <laughs> I did it for, for that reason only, and, and it did help on the day, so I guess the end justified the means. Uh, hi Ed, Ben here. Nice to speak to you on the other side of the phone this week. Um, obviously, we've heard how, like you, <laughs> we've heard how, like you said, how arduous it was. After doing the uh, walk, would you do another one? Would you do it again? Um, invariably, I think. Well, certainly not. Certainly not this week. I'll tell, I'll tell you that <laughs> for a start. But uh, you look at something like that and you reflect on it, and the sense of achievement that you get is is massive. It really is. And that was something I'd never really allowed myself to think about too much, how I would feel were I to complete it, because it would probably amplify the sense of disappointment that I would feel if I didn't. And to be honest with you, on the route, we really did see some people who were in quite bad shape. You know, a lot of people having to go to hospital. I think around 230 people dropped out of the event in one way, shape or form or another. Um, so, so it really is a big challenge. Um, with regards to doing another one, I think for me personally, I could do with a bit of a rest and it's, it's nice to have done it and I want to enjoy that. I wouldn't rule it out, but for me personally to justify doing it, I think I would need to, to if you like, zone in on a new version of that challenge, perhaps 100 kilometers in, in say 20 hours, for example, or there is a slightly longer one on the, on the Isle of Wight, which is 106, um, completing that within a certain time, perhaps. You know, I wouldn't rule it out, but at this moment, it's, it's not in my immediate planning, I'll tell you that much. So, so uh, there was a fun photo you put up on Twitter uh, you did it with two friends, and you've been dubbed the new end dubs. Um, did your did your friends find it arduous as well? I think everyone found it very challenging in their own way. We're all from competitive backgrounds. We had Molly Russell with us. Molly was at one point uh, qualifying for doing the GB Olympic trials in sprinting uh, back in 20, uh, 2011. Um, so she has competed at an incredibly high level in athletics. Ben Duffy was another person who did the, the walk with me. He had played football at a very competitive level, as had I. So in that regard, we all had the drive that I think you need to, to really push yourselves. Um, but we all struggled in different ways. Molly developed the same nausea that I did, but 15 kilometers from the end. Um, and when you're so close, perhaps it's slightly easier to override, but she had it for considerably longer than I did and handled it probably far better than I did as well. So, um, you know, full credit where it's due there. As for Ben, we all brought different strengths to the team, and Ben's big strength is that he's a powerhouse. He's shorter than I, but very, very powerful. Up hills, he was disappearing and would wait for us at the top. He was that good at, at hill climbing. Towards the end, he very much felt the effect of that, and in the last few kilometres, both he and I were struggling to walk in a straight line. Um, you know, it wasn't terrible, but it wasn't easy either. And we did slow the pace right down. So I think everyone found it difficult in their own way. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's in those moments that your team dynamic really kicks in and you start to drive each other on a little bit. And, and that courtesy from team members that you get waiting for each other, looking after each other, all that sort of thing becomes really, really important because in those moments where you are struggling, you lean upon your teammates. Ed, we are r rapidly running out of time. It was just, uh, just obviously, first of all, you know, to say congratulations on such an incredible thing. I know the donations are still open. Do you just be able to tell everyone uh, where they can do that and uh, how they can sort of um, support what you've done, which is obviously so incredible? 
Well, we have a, a GoFundMe page which will remain open for another week, and I'm sure we can arrange for that to go up on the uh, on the website or on the Twitter so that we can donate donations. Even since we since we finished, have been have been fantastic. You know, we've received over 400 pounds, and I must mention our very own Kafdar as well. Her company donated 300 to take us to over two and a half thousand pounds, which was honestly so so amazing, and I can't thank her enough for that. Um, but other people have got in touch and, and just wished as well. And as I say, donated to the point where we're now at over 2,600. Um, so look, it's anything that you can give is fantastic. Equally, we really appreciate people just, just you know, recognising what we did and, and saying well done. That's great as well. And there's just one thing, Ed, we, we want to give you. <laughs> I, I used it last week we had to use it again this week Ed thanks so much for joining us mate and uh, congratulations on such an incredible thing Ed Tolton there just talking about his uh, in rather incredible 100 kilometre walk and uh, you know unfortunately it's a good job that was last week else it would obviously be overtaking the big hitters of this week in terms of sporting events uh, we, we get into the big game obviously now in our Hot Topics section England-Germany tomorrow night our old foes in the round of 16 with a very 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 favourable draw if we get through a very very pleasant side of the tournament I'll start with you Ben I mean England Germany it doesn't get much bigger than this in the European Championships does it no it's an unbelievable game and I can't believe it's happening in the last 16 it's quite disappointing actually that it's not going to be a semi-final or a final but it's one of those culturally significant games that you're going to know especially if England win you're going to know where you were uh, and where you were when you when you watch the game Sam, yourself, what's your sort of thoughts going into it? Are you confident? I'm older than both of you, and I've got the pain of Italia 90 and Euro 96 (laughs) still in my heart. So I was there. You were probably little embryos, the pair of you, at the time of those two things. So, yeah, we need some revenge. Uh, It needs to come home. I thought, you know, it's, it's interesting you say it, that it, it needs to come home because it's one of those situations where genuinely, I know we had it in, in sort of a, a smaller fashion at the 2018 World Cup where when we beat Colombia on penalties, it was Sweden. And, you know, no, no disrespect to Sweden, it was a favourable tie and it would be a favourable tie again in the quarterfinals. And, and even in the semifinals, you look, it's either the Czech Republic or Denmark, I think, if we get that far. And as with any sort of sporting event, a final is a lottery. I mean, if we do beat them, because, you know, we've, we've all said a lot about England's performances so far, especially especially after that Scotland game. I think I said some very dishonourable thing about Gareth Southgate <laughs> in the team, but you know, which I won't be saying, by the way, if we win tomorrow night. But, but in, all, in all seriousness, it's obviously something that, that needs to be taken you know, properly seriously. That if we, if we beat the Germans tomorrow, you know, whether we will or not, I don't know what, what he'll do in terms of team selection. We haven't conceded a goal yet. There's a very, very real possibility we can get to the final, isn't there? But that's the problem, isn't it? Looking ahead. It is, yeah. Looking past that that game. And we always do it. We did it the same in the semi-final at the World Cup. We said, oh, it's only Croatia. We're going to get to the final and look what happens. So I think the key for the players is to not think about that. We can think about that. The press can think about that. But if the players get in their head that once we beat Germany, we're we're in the final, I I don't think we're going to win the game. I think it's crucial that they focus 100% on the game tomorrow. And that's it. Maria, obviously you're not by trade you said you'd be looking out for England yeah, in this tournament looking you're looking, out for, looking them. out for them you're not fully behind I mean, them 
play in Germany, I think every, every English every English fan wants them to beat Germany, really, isn't it? It's a big rivalry, so so definitely I'll, I'll be tuning in a hundred percent, and I'll be I'll be backing the boys. Well, we can that's all we can ask for from from Maria Sabatinos. <laughs> I think it's, it certainly should make for a wonderful game, regardless. I especially think with such an age in Germany side, Sam. You know, it's not the Germany of late, is it? It's not the it's not the Germany Germany of past. Sorry, it's not the Germany that won the the World Cup back in in twenty fourteen. It is it is isn't the same sort of I, big hitters are they i have to say my best mates are german and the psychology of the germans is what scares the hell out of me they go into tournaments generally awful their record in warm-up games is dire and yet they get to a tournament and then they play average and they get better and then they get better and they've got this <laughs> strong mentality and you look at that game against you know the last game they played and you think where did that result come out of? And then suddenly, and then Kai Havertz has suddenly hit the ground. He couldn't hit the ground in Chelsea all season. Timo Werner might even score once, you know. <laughs> That'll be a miracle. I mean, but you just look at it and then and Goethe is a brilliant player. He is absolutely frighteningly good and, and Bayern should, unfortunately, they get all the best German young players. Mm. Goethe is very good. I think, I think we've got some, that, you say it's an ageing play uh, team because of Hummels and, and, and uh, but no, I think, you know, they've got some real young talent. Well, I just want to touch on something you said earlier about, you know, me and Will not even being alive when England lost at Unite 96. A lot of the players in the team are the same. So they don't have that inferiority complex of not, you know, of watching England losing the semi-final. Do you not think that could be an advantage for us? I, I think it is. I mean, it's a young side that, you know, Gareth has brought through from the under-18s, 21s. He's been with them. And I think he's got that club mentality at England level, which I think is great. You're right. There, there shouldn't be any psychological pain, but the problem is the fans have the psychological pain and they're the only ones in the ground. And if we go 1-0 down, I wonder whether the fans will project that onto the team and that's the problem. Us old boys watching it will go, oh, here we go again. <laughs> Bloody Germans. It's what me and Ben are full of hope, I suppose, isn't it? It's, it's that. You've not had the pain. Yeah. Well, the worst pain, I could, worst pain I think we've had is the semi-final in Russia uh, just, just two years ago. But even then, I mean, you touch on it, they're the inferiority complex. We beat Colombia on penalties then. That's the hoodoo gone. Hopefully it doesn't well, get that far on Tuesday night, but you, know, you just never know. I hear you? the 28th man coming on is uh, Gareth Southgate to take a penalty. <laughs> Redemption. Redemption. Redemption finally. for Gareth Southgate. Um, that's about all we've got time for in our Hot Topic section this week. But next, it's the Predictions League. Windsor, Ascot, Maidenhead, Bracknell, Wokingham, Henley, Reading. The voice River Radio of the Thames Valley. We're back here on River Radio Extra Time with Will Taylor, Maria Sapsinos, Sam Setti and Ben Green. It's time for our Predictions League, which is a week every week we all take it in turns to predict the results of four games and uh, the winner who comes on top gets uh, overall will not have to wear a full kit at the end of the season. That's right, it is time for everyone's favourite game on, well, any radio at all, actually. It is the Predictions League on Extra Time here. We've had quite an interesting last few weeks, a lot of development. Maria's sticking her neck on the line with a couple of shouts, not to copy anyone, and I'll say that in air quotes because I think she just got it wrong, but, you know, and uh, it it not paying off. You're actually bottom of the league at a minute, Maria. 
I know it's a little depressing, isn't it? I was really hoping Ed would be at the bottom by now, but by a clear way. But I'm actually by at the bottom by by quite quite a difference, and yeah, it's going to be quite embarrassing. I know the jokes about the medals happen all the time, but they could come true. I could be sat here one day with my medal, and that would just be humiliating. It would make absolutely no difference to you being sat here today with your medal around your neck as you are. So you know, it's every week. I just wish you stopped bringing it. I don't know about you two. It's just getting a bit silly now. But um, obviously, it is. I think it's one of the la- the last two weeks of the predictions. Now we're getting into for this month. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not sure when the exact end date is. I'm sure Ed will be able to let us know next week. Sam, it's obviously your turn to pick the predictions this week. Can you just talk us through some of the ones that you've gone for? Yeah. So. Obviously, we just talked about it, the England-Germany game. That's an obvious one to pick. Uh, we've got the British Lions flying over to South Africa for the start of the Lions tour. So we're going to talk about that one. Uh, Kent v Somerset in the T20 tomorrow. Uh, and of course, Wimbledon starting. We had to pick a game from Wimbledon as well. We absolutely did. So let's go first and foremost with the game we've just spoken so much about, England-Germany. So no one's accused of copying anyone. I'll, I'll go, go with Maria first I'll this time. First. So what do you think? What do you make of that England-Germany game tomorrow, 8 o'clock? As much as I love England, I'm going to go 2-1 Germany. You did this with Talky Hartlepool as well. It's a, it's a real common theme. For, could you talk well, us through Hartlepool that? Well, Hartlepool won, didn't they, Ben? Uh, on penalties. Yeah, I mean, I on penalties. It again, on penalties. We'll she went in normal time, so let's just let's gloss over that. Um, I'm going 2-1 Germany. How come? Just, I mean, I just don't think England have it. I'm sorry. I'm going to get a lot it's of It's not hate. coming home. No, I want it to come home. And I really do, but I'm being realistic here, and I've got to go. I'm at bottom of the league, guys. I've got to, I've got, I've got to go. I've got to go bold. I've got to go out there. She's putting it all on black. Yes, she really is. She really is. I need to. I cannot wait for that medal to be round your neck next week. Sam, what have you gone for for this one? Uh, although I shouldn't follow, uh, I'm, I'm sadly, I don't think Southgate's going to pick the right side. Sancho's not played yet. He knows the German league. Jude Bellingham's played very little. He knows the German league. He won't pick them both. He'll go for safety. We're going to go back to the West Ham donkeys in the centre of the park. I just think we're going to play a five at the back practically and we're going to sit back and I think we're going to pay the consequences. Dare I predict a penalty decision? So what, what in 90 minutes, what are you going for? 90 minutes, I'm going to go nil-nil. nil-nil and I'm nil, going to wow. go for extra time with penalties. I Brilliant. think we're going penalties this one again. Oh, we, can't, we can't lose them on penalties again. Obviously, Ben, you're picking for Ed this week in his absence. We're hoping that you sort of don't do him a favour, but I, hope, I have a strange feeling you might. What have you gone for on this one? Well, I'm a little bit more optimistic than Sam. I do hear his concerns in terms of the squad. I think if he plays a flat back five, two in the middle, holding midfielders, I think we're going to struggle to create enough chances. But, you know, ever the optimist, I'm going England 1-0 in normal time, like we have done in our two previous wins in this tournament. 1-0, maybe an early goal and you know, an incredibly boring second half. But if we win, <laughs> I'll take it. And, uh, do you know what? I, I see exactly what you're saying. For me, it's um, it's not going to be quite as black and white as that. But you are right. We haven't conceded a goal at the tournament yet. Say what you like about us. Oh, very defensive, very flat, but it, it seems to have worked to treat. I do think we're going to concede. I do think it's going to extra time. So I've gone for one all in 90 minutes, which is obviously the only the only you know prediction that actually counts. But I do think we're going to nick it in extra time. I think there's enough attacking talent to come off that bench if he does it right, if he utilises his, his options right. There's enough. Uh, there's enough for us to go through, but I do think it's going to be too tight to call in ninety minutes. So can I say one we qualified as the lowest scoring side into the next round? So yeah. 
we might not have conceded, but we haven't actually no, gone no, it's up, a very up good the other point. end of the pitch either. It's a very good point. Um, next, up, next up, obviously, we've got the British and Irish Lions are playing the South African Lions in, uh, in Johannesburg, I believe it is, on Saturday at five o'clock. Uh, Maria, we'll go, we'll go to you first, obviously, just following the circle around. How do you see sort of that one going? Yeah, I mean, not Sam, not a resident rugby expert, really. <laughs> so again, this time I've, I've tried, changed tact a little bit and gone to back the boys, gone back to back the Lions, the, the British and Irish Lions. So I've gone 30-18 for, to us. To us, it. yeah. Sam? Okay, massive loss losing the captain, Alwyn Jones. Uh, Conor Murray stepping up to take the captaincy. Uh, straight off the flight, straight into a game, I think they're going to hit hard grounds in Joburg. They're going to hit a hard set of uh, South African Lions. Um, I think they won't win the first provisional game that's not a problem it only matters no one remembers those games um i was there in 99 for the last lions tour down to south africa um and we didn't win our provisional games but we did actually draw the test which was the key thing um wonderful drop goal from jeremy guskett um so i think yeah we've got a great show. oh and of course local boy matt dawson scored the wonder try at cape town and i, I own his shirt there we bought go. it in a the raffle. There's your claim to fame. <laughs> it was in my toilet. It's now at Marlow Rugby Club. <laughs> ben, what are your thoughts on that one, mate? Well, initially I was going for South Africa until I realised it was South Africa's C or D team. So that has actually changed my opinion. Um, I think the, the Lions will win. I'm going with 30-10. Uh, but I don't think it's going to be about consequences. I think maybe, like Sam said, there'll be a couple of hard tackles. You know, the South Africans are notoriously a hard team to play against. So we will win, but maybe some injuries along the way. Completely agree. I think that I've gone for 38 14. Sorry, Sam, I don't think we actually got a prediction, a score out of you. But I'm going 25 10 to the South African Lions. The South African Lions. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Sticking I, his, saying that it's worked for him so far. I mean, this is an actual, he's got substance behind this prediction. That's sort of the only difference so far. But, you know, he. <laughs> That's it, where it all goes wrong. Yeah, he stuck, stuck his neck out on the line a few times and it's worked in wonders. And um, very quickly, the cricket as well in the Vitality T20 Blast on uh, that's seven o'clock tonight. Uh, that's Kent v Somerset. Maria, any thoughts on that? one i'm just going off the fact that last time we did kent in a in a predictions league i went with glamorgan and i didn't win so i'm going with kent this time i think they they got a good side they're good they're second in the league aren't they so they're they're proving themselves and yeah i've gone with kent i have to go to my tried and tested method which is the wife's surname is kent and that's the only reason i'm picking it <laughs> i'm the only indian probably on the planet who hates cricket <laughs> And I have to say that I couldn't give a stuff generally, but I would like to stay top of the league, so I'm going with Kent. Okay, Ben? I think it's going to be a close game. I'm going to go with Kent, but if you look at the league, um, Somerset have played a game less and only three or four points off, so I think it's going to be close, but I think, I think Kent will win this one. I've, gone, I've actually gone with a Sam approach this time. Um, I'm, not, I'm going for Somerset because literally because it's closer to where I'm from and it's really quite close to where I'm from. The You've county been of, there once. I've been, well, I've been there, I've driven through it, through it plenty of times. It's, it's really very close to where I live. It's the county over. So it's, I'm going to go for Somerset because I, I fancy extending my lead at the top of the table. Uh, very, just finally, obviously, we've got the last, um, the last prediction in the tennis at Wimbledon. Uh, a, a bloke somehow whose first name is Tennis, which I believe is why it's been predicted. Tennis Sangren plays Gombos in Wimbledon round one tomorrow at 11am. Maria, very very quickly who have you gone for in this one and what's the score well they're very very close on the rankings both of them so I think it's going to be a very close match a little bit 
whoever plays better on the day, kind of not too much between them. I've I've gone with Tennis Sangren because he is the higher ranked player and he's more established on, on the tour and I've gone three one. Okay, I'm actually going with Tennis Sangren just because I love his name. <laughs> no other reason. I think his parents knew exactly what career he was going to have when he popped out. Uh, either that, he's done deep pole, I don't know which. Um, so I'm going for him. And, I, and sadly, I'm copying you on this one, Maria, 3-1. Uh, well, I'm the, I'm the same as Sam, you know, he's called tennis. You know, he has not, to win. How do you not go for him? So yeah, three sets to love for, for Sangren. Perfect. I've, I've actually also backed tennis Sangren. And funnily enough, I saw him at the Australian Open, uh, just wandered into one of the one of the sort of um, arenas that was there to hear a crowd of loads of Americans shouting, come on, tennis. I just thought they loved the sport, but it was tennis Sangren <laughs> they were shouting for. Um, I have actually gone for the same score as both of you. I think it's going to be 3-1 to tennis Sangren, but plenty to get through, obviously, on this week's predictions. And Hopefully, Maria, that means you can get off the bottom of the table with only a week left. I really hope so. I really hope so. There's nothing worse than me coming in <laughs> in two weeks' time in full kit. That's just not going to happen. Ed, oh, yeah. And if you're listening, that's going to be you. Um, obviously, that is about all we have time for this week on Extra Time on River Radio. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you again next week.